Well, good evening, everyone. My name's James. If we've not met, I'm on the staff team here. And we're coming to the final one in a series of four, thinking about fear. And finally, we turn to the fear of other people. And we're going to need God's help. So let's pray together as we begin. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Father, we don't want to be a people who are gripped by fear. Father, we pray that this evening you would free us from the fear of other people, that we might live for your glory and for the honour of Jesus Christ. Amen. So recently I had the privilege of speaking to a group of 11 to 14-year-olds on the subject of self-image. And as part of the talk, I split them up into various different groups based on age and gender and asked them a question and said, what do you worry that other people think about you? And I gave them some post-it notes and got them to kind of stick the post-it notes down on the pieces of paper to see what they worried about as they went into school each day. And it was amazing that there was about 60 different things this group of 11 to 14-year-olds feared, worried about when they went into school. I was going to put a picture up, but the... the, um, Resolution wasn't good enough, but all the sorts of things you can imagine. So the, the girls, they were worrying, what do I look like? Are my eyebrows okay? That's what a few of them put down. <laughs> are my clothes color-coordinated, genuinely? Are they, are they matching? That's what they were thinking. Will I get good enough grades? And then the boys, there's a group of 13-year-old boys, and will the girls like me? And then as well as that, there was... Um, Will my grades be good enough? There was also one sweet boy who put down, will I remember the rules to Dungeons and Dragons? That was the final one. But as I, as I looked through all these different worries and fears they had, I had a couple of reflections. One, that is a lot of worry for an 11 to 14-year-old to be carrying every day as they go into school. But the second thing I thought was, well, actually, the heart of an 11 to 14-year-old is no different to our hearts when we think about it. The same worries that they carry around are the worries that we carry around as we go about our day-to-day business. We worry about what other people think of us. We worry about, well, what will that person think when they see me? What will that person say about me? We live in fear. And so this evening, we're going to turn to the Bible and see what Jesus has to say to people who are worried about other people who are living in fear. I've put down on the, on the sheet a, a couple of points about why do we fear other people. You'll see these coming up in the passage as we go through, but I wanted to put them front and center as we begin so we can think in our heads, why do we fear other people? So the first one I put down is, we fear some people because they have the power to determine our future. We fear some people because they have the power to determine our future. So we don't actually care what these people think about us. We just care that they can do things to us. They can affect what's going to happen in the future. So we think, for example, of we walk into to the office and you know the boss has the power to give us the promotion or to sideline us. Or we're sitting on the tube and we worry about that group of people sitting in the corner who could cause us physical damage. We worry about people because of what they can do to us. We see them as, as judges who, well, they pass sentence and they'll determine what happens in our future. So that's one reason. Another reason we might fear other people is the second one. We fear some people because they have the power to reject or to accept us. We fear some people because they have the power to reject or to accept us. It's a more subtle thing because often it doesn't look like the trembling fear that we have when we walk into the office to see the boss. It's more a, 
a, a need, a longing to be affirmed, to be accepted by other people all the time. We crave affirmation. We fear that one day we might hear words of rejection. So we go into the party and that person must compliment me. Because if they don't, I'm going to feel a bit insecure. Or we go into the office and, and we worry that unless that person tells me I'm good at my job, well, then I'm going to feel insecure about how good I am, my ability. And the problem is that when we view people this way, we can easily end up fearing them, thinking that the way that we live must be determined by how they think of us. And it affects our Christian life, because what happens is that these people determine how we live as Christians, rather than what Jesus Christ wants us to do. And so this evening, we're going to turn to hear what Jesus has to say to correct our distorted perspective. There's an author called Ed Welch. He's written a book, and the title of the book is When People Are Big and God Is Small. And that's what we're thinking about this evening. When we walk into a room and people are big and God is small. And so we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 10. It's page 975. It'd be good if you had that open as we look through. And we're going to see some things that Jesus says. We're particularly thinking about verses 26 through to 31. And you might have noticed as we read through that the disciples are afraid and they have every reason to be afraid. So verses 16 to 20, Jesus tells them that he's sending them out to speak and to live for him. And if you look at verses 16 to 20, you'll see that they face an uncertain future. As they go and live for Jesus Christ, they might be arrested, they might be flogged, they might be handed over to governors and kings. They face an uncertain future. But not only that, verses 21 to 23 say that they're going to be rejected. Rejected even by the closest friends, brothers, fathers. These people are facing fear. And Jesus says in verses 26 to 31, do not be afraid. He says it three times, verse 26, do not be afraid. Then again, verse 28, do not be afraid. Then again, verse 31, do not be afraid. As Jesus sends his followers out to live and to speak for him, his big message is do not be afraid of these people. Don't be afraid of other people. He doesn't want his followers to be crippled by the fear of others. He wants them free to live and to speak for him. And so Jesus reminds us of two massive truths, which I put down on the sheet, two massive truths that will help us correct that distorted perspective and allow us to keep on living and speaking for Jesus. You'll see the first one is God is our judge who determines our eternal future. And the second one is God is our father who accepts his precious children. So God is our judge, God is our father. These are two massive truths. And if we get them clear in our heads, then hopefully we'll be able to live lives free from fear of other people. So let's look through those two points. Firstly, verses 26 to 28. God is our judge who determines our eternal future. Let's read the verses again. It says this, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the extreme case is this, that these disciples are about to go out and they're going to face death. They're going to face death. These are people who have the ultimate power to determine their future. Death could come. And Jesus' point is this, 
if you fear God, who has the, eternal, the power to determine your eternal future, you won't fear other people. They're afraid that if they keep speaking for Jesus, then they will be killed. Now, that might seem a long way away from where we are. Not to our brothers and sisters in North Korea, but to where we are, and that might seem a long way away. But the reality is there's always a cost to speaking and living for Jesus. There's always a cost. I remember vividly when I became a Christian a couple of weeks afterwards, I was sitting in class, and for some reason the teacher had said, put your hand up if you go to church. And so I was quite scared, but trembling, put my hand up, I go to church. And I just remember seeing in the front row a couple of people turn around, George and Will, and they turned around and looked at me in utter disbelief. How could you be a Christian? Just thinking, oh no, there's my reputation gone right there. And then one of them said to me, you're in big trouble because we're going to humiliate you now. A couple of weeks after becoming a Christian. And to my shame, for the next two years, I never spoke once to them of Christ because I was crippled by my fear. And I guess I'm not the only one who feels like that sometimes, that to speak for Christ, to call yourself a Christian, invites, well, invites difficulty to your future. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people who have the power to determine your future because the fear has been misdirected. Verse 28 is the key. Have a look down at verse 28 again. It says this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, while we perceive other people to be judging us and passing sentence on us, the reality is that everyone stands in the dock. And one day God will stand there as judge. And he has the power to determine our eternal futures. Look, no one enjoys talking about hell. I don't enjoy talking about hell. But Jesus insists that we must. Because he says it's real. And he says that thinking about hell will actually change the way that we live now. It will stop us being afraid of other people. Hell is awful. There aren't adjectives that will properly dis- appropriately describe it. To be separated from God, his loving presence, and to invite only his unrelenting anger for eternity. That is serious. It is so serious, and God has the power to send us there or not to. And so if we're going to be in fear of anyone over our future, surely we must be in fear of God. Surely we must fear him above all else because he has that power to ultimately cast us away. The judge of all the world is going to bring perfect justice. That's what verse 26 says. Don't be afraid of them for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. When God judges, he will disclose everything. All that's hidden will be revealed. And at that moment, his perfect justice will come. His perfect justice. And at that moment, as he passes sentence, he has power to send to hell. It's serious. But when we understand that God has this power, ultimately, it will stop us being afraid of others now who have only a temporary power over us, who can only destroy body, but can't destroy body and soul in hell. God becomes very big, and people become very small, as we see him as the one with the ultimate power over our futures. I was reading this week about the life of a man named Polycarp. 
Polycarp was born in 69 AD, so he was a a first-generation Christian after the apostles. He was um, taught by the apostle John, history tells us. Um, And he was a a pastor, a bishop of the area called Smyrna on the um, west coast of Turkey, I think. And as he got older in his late 80s, Polycarp was arrested by the Roman authorities for speaking of Christ. He was arrested and he was taken publicly into a, a big arena where lots of people were looking on. And the, uh, the proconsul at the time, the ruler, wanted to stop him speaking of Jesus. It went a little bit like this. It's recorded. The proconsul said, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? So the furious proconsul then began getting really aggressive towards him and said, I'm going to execute you with wild animals. I'm going to burn you at the stake. At that moment, what is it that's going to allow an old man not just to retire away in comfort, but to stand trusting Christ, speaking for Christ? This is what he said. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And so aged 86, Polycarp was burnt at the stake, refusing to deny Christ. There was a man who feared God and his judgments more than man. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I'm sure that there are people here, I need to be reminded of that, people here need to be reminded of that sometimes, that as we go out into the world to speak of Christ, and as we stand in fear of what other people can do to us, there is a God who has ultimate power to determine our future. So don't be afraid of those who can cast you out of their social group. Fear God, who can cast you out of his loving presence forever. Don't be afraid of those who can inflict the pain of mockery on you. Be afraid of God who can inflict the pain of eternal punishment. In that moment when the fear of other people seems so overwhelming and wants to drive us to deny Christ, fear God above all others, because he has the ultimate power to determine our future. That's the first point. It's a heavy-hitting point. But Jesus insists we must think about it so that we might live for him and fear him above all others. But you'll notice the tone of what Jesus is saying suddenly shifts in verse 29. So look down at verse 29. You'll see the tone shifts completely. He then says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall into the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. One moment he's talking about hell. The next moment he's talking about a father who cares God is our Father who values his children very highly. He cares for us. In verse 26 to 28, God is the judge who we're standing in fear of. But then in verse 29 to 31, God is our Father, the judge and the Father. Do you see that? And can you see how Jesus makes his argument? This God cares even about the smallest details of life in this world even down to the buying and selling of a couple of sparrows. I searched on the internet to try and find out how many sparrows there are in the world. 
It proved more tricky than I thought. There are billions. There are so many different sorts of species, it's hard to know. But there are billions of sparrows everywhere. And the verse says that God cares about even a sparrow that's bought and sold and then dies. God cares. He's not just a a big picture sort of God. You remember in Isaiah 40 when we saw God as his majestic rule over all of the cosmos, holding all the stars in his hand, holding the nations in his hand. And yet here, well, he's the God who knows and cares about just a little sparrow worth nothing. He's not just a big picture sort of God. He's not too distracted with ruling over this world that he doesn't care about the tiniest things. And if he cares for the most worthless sparrow, how much more would he care for the people he calls his children? Do you see that? Verse 31, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You're worth more than many sparrows. See, his care for his children extends down to even the most insignificant details of life. It says even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, if like me, one of your biggest fears is going to the hairdressers because you know that the number is decreasing very quickly... Jesus' words might not seem insignificant to you. But it is. It's an insignificant detail. How many hairs do you have on your head? What he's saying is God cares. He cares so much. He even knows that detail about you and about me. He cares so much. There's not one detail about you he does not know, one circumstance you experience, one emotion you feel, one worry that keeps you up at night that God doesn't know about and care about as your father. It's the most amazing thing. God is our father, and he cares so much, personally, intimately, a father with their children. God cares and values his children so very highly. Now, why does Jesus tell us this? One moment he's talking about hell, the next moment he's talking about this. So why does Jesus say that? We'll look down at verse 31, because you'll see the point is exactly the same. So don't be afraid. The outcome, the application is the same. Don't be afraid. So God is father, and that's supposed to make us not afraid of other people. How does that work? Well, if you remember, the disciples are facing the prospect of being rejected by even their closest family friends. Brothers might hand them over. Parents might reject them. They're facing the prospect of being rejected by others. I said at the start that one of the reasons we fear others is because we, we, feel, we feel insecure unless we get affirmation. We look to other people because we want them to tell us that we're doing things right, that we look right, that we are saying the right things, that we have the right opinions. We, we, we kind of crave the affirmation of others. We hate rejection. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid because we have a father who cares about you. And he cares about you so, so very much. You don't need to look to other people for affirmation. You can trust your father that he loves you and he cares for you. Don't be afraid. If we're certain that we have a father who loves us, then we can live securely in that love. We can look for him, to him for acceptance, not to other people. If our father cares for us, why should we be afraid? One of the scarier moments of my life was when I was a, a young teenager. I was playing um, tennis one morning in the local village park. And as I was playing with my friend, it was early in the morning, so there wasn't anyone else around. And as we were playing, a couple of older boys rode into the tennis courts um, and they started pushing us around quite a bit and um, they took my mate's phone and they started pushing us into the corner and hitting, um, hit my mate a bit more and then said, you know, if you, keep telling, if you tell anyone about this, we're going to pull our knives out on you. And as a, a young 
boy, that was really, really scary. And of course, much scary things happen in the world, but for me, that was utterly terrifying. And I went home and I did tell my parents, and there was a, a police investigation into it, but nothing came. Now, about nine months later, I was walking through this same park, and I, I looked over to the other side, and I felt that lurch in my stomach, because I knew that the boy on the other side of the green was that guy who'd come into the tennis court. I had that moment of utter fear. Except this time, Dad was with me. And I went over to Dad and said, Dad, that's the boy. And he looked at me, and I remember him looking at me and just saying, he's not going to do anything to you because I'm here. I will protect you and I will make sure you're okay. And those words of a father's care for his children was exactly what a scared boy needed to hear, to not be afraid. And what Jesus is saying is this. Your father cares for you, and so you don't need to be afraid of others. Not just physical insecurity, but all of the other insecurities that lurk in our hearts. The things we worry about, the things that we crave others to affirm us in. Instead of anxiously, fearfully hoping that that person gives me the compliment, I can turn to my father and know that he cares for me no matter what. No matter how much I'm rejected by others, he still cares for me. We turn to our Father, we see that he cares, and we live securely in his love. Jesus is desperate that we would know and believe that we have a Father who cares about everything to do with his children. And we don't need to live for the acceptance of others, we can live for the acceptance of our Father who cares. Now, at this point, we might have a question, which is this. How can God call me his child? Because we've already seen that God is our judge. He's the one who, on that final day, will expose everything about us. And as we said in the words of the confession earlier, we confess that we've done stuff wrong. And if we've done stuff wrong, how can God as judge call us his children as father? How does that work? How could it possibly make sense that the judge of all the earth, who will judge every action and every motive of my heart, how could he call me his child? And it's at this point that we have to move through Matthew's gospel towards the end, towards Easter time, and turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, because it's there that we see how God can be both judge and father. At the cross, the word of God's judgment that ought to have fallen on us fell on Jesus. Jesus took the sin of his people onto himself and the words rang through the courtroom, guilty, condemned, sinful, failure. Those words that ought to have fallen on me fell on Jesus. And he was judged. He was condemned in my place. But even more than that, because of the cross, the words of God's fatherly care can now be spoken to me and to you and to anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. For anyone who trusts in Jesus and his death on the cross, as judge, God looks at you and declares you not guilty because of Jesus. And as father, he welcomes in anyone who trusts in him into his family as children. The one whose words had the power to condemn has instead chosen to speak a word of forgiveness to us as we trust in him. So that what we hear from God now is accepted, loved, cared for, 
my children, as we trust in Jesus. It's amazing that we can know God as our Father, that we can live as children. And it's that that gives us security as we face rejection and as we face insecurity in ourselves, as we worry about what other people think and what other people are going to say about us. To know that we have that rock-solid place to stand as God's children, to know that he cares for us and will care for us and continue to care for us, both now and for all eternity. It's there that we can make our stand and not have to worry about what other people say or what other people think. If we believe that God calls us his children through Jesus, then we can be liberated from the fear of other people because we don't need their acceptance because we have God our Father's acceptance. So as we draw to a close, can I encourage you to to live in, in freedom, not in fear? To live in freedom, to know that we can be free to love others, not have to live under their control. To live lives that are sacrificial for the sake of Christ, doing what he says, speaking for him, living for him, wherever we find ourselves. I want you to think for a moment of of the person whose approval you crave the most. Just think, the person who you worry most what they think about you. And as you think of that person, imagine how differently your life would be if you no longer lived for their approval. Imagine the, the way that you would act towards them and towards other people. Imagine how quick you would be to speak the gospel to them if they're not Christians. Imagine how quick you would be to to live for Jesus, to make decisions that Jesus would be honoured by, not that they would want you to do. Imagine if you were free from living for the approval of of others. What difference would it make to how many people you told the gospel? What difference would it make to how you spend your money? What difference would it make to what you spent your time doing? And when you thought about that, now think about your father. If you trust Jesus Christ, think about him. Think about his words of acceptance that have fallen on you, that you can be known as his children, that you can be loved, that you can be accepted, that you can be forgiven. Let that truth sink into you, that God does love you as father. And as you trust in him, that does give you freedom, freedom to live as God wants you to live, as his child, and freedom not to live for the approval of others. We're going to pray together and thank God that we can be known as his children. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you are the judge of all the earth. We know that you have the power to send us to hell or to heaven. We know that no person in this world can have that sort of power over us. And so we rightly fear you. But we praise you so much that at Easter time we remember that Jesus Christ came into the world to make us his children, your children, accepted and loved. And we pray that you would allow us to live lives that are free from the fear of others as we live in the acceptance and the love that you have shown to us. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.